Dead or alive, you are coming with me. What is this bullshit? Good trash genre cast. I love you. I know. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Donner Cast, where people gather in a table <laughs> and sleep. Lazy Sunday. It is a very, very lazy, lazy on a Sunday afternoon. Gloomy, gloomy Sunday afternoon, and here we are gathered, not talking about the films you will not discuss in film studies courses we normally do. That's I, a double negative. I that always you need to follow. I, I always imagine uh, new listeners tuning in for the first time during anti trash. Um, and like feel the need to give giant disclaimers. Right. <laughs> warning, this, warning. We don't normally do this. This movie would show up in a film studies class, but we normally analyze the films that will not show up in a film studies Correct. class. And uh, this week we're looking at a little documentary about the making of pencils, and uh, it is called Eraserhead. I knew I knew that was what his riff was going to be. Easily. What this film was about. Well, yeah, that's just, it's like Easily. Low-hanging yeah. fruit, man. It, it is. It's about all the workers who get sick working in the rubber factories while uh, constructing uh, erasers for Suffering pencils. Suffering from uh, lead poisoning. M- much like uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. It is a, a true expose. And, and the birth defects that ensue. Wait a minute. <laughs> it, got, it, it got real, real. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about David Lynch's Eraserhead because it's anti-trash, and we like to start every year doing some films that you would discuss in a film studies course to get the juices flowing and ready us for uh, the following 11 months. That buffet of trash that is to come. And it is episode 250, so we thought we'd do a big movie for that. And uh, I don't know if there's many bigger than Eraserhead. Yeah, I mean, in, in the world of film analysis, it's a big boy. It's kind of a thing. So we are going to talk about that. But before we do that, we're going to introduce ourselves so that you know to whom you are listening. Uh, across uh, there in the hoodie, uh, sir, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon and Dalton Counter. <laughs> Poor Paul. That's good stuff. All right, sir, who are you to my left? My name is Dalton Stewart. And Dustin, did you and Arthur have sexual intercourse? I don't think that's your business. <laughs> My name is Dustin Sells. You, and can't, you can't see this now, uh, listener, but I am now trying to give Dustin a real wet one on the neck. He, oh, he is. That's just normal, though. Mm, I mean, that's yeah, true. pretty typical. That's not, that's not regulated to anti-trash. That's, that's year-round. Yeah, pretty much. My name is Dustin Sells, and do you want me to cut these up just like regular chickens? <laughs> <laughs> Hurry, the dinner's getting cold. The, man, I tell you what, this dinner's getting real cold. And uh, the dinner, and Kate, and then, and, and, and. This the, movie is just a barrel of laughs. It is a mile a minute barrel of laughs. This is a funny movie. It is a funny movie. It is a funny movie. But to warn you, dear listener, if you're listening to this for the very first time, this is no review show. Oh, no, it is an analysis show. And that means we are going to do some spoiling. Um,. I don't know to what extent that is applicable. I don't know to what extent any words are applicable to a racer head. But we'll get to that when we get to analysis. But to warn you... And, sperm. And so far, there will be sperm. As far as the eye can see. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Sperm. <laughs> His milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. 
Oh, my. So uh, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have synopsis, which I don't know how useful that will be, from the voice of the cinema. Then we'll have our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be also equally useless. Then we'll have a very useless game, followed by um, equally useless analysis. Uh, and no. Wow, you really are just setting the bar super high for this <laughs> podcast right now. <laughs> and uh, so, but once we get to analysis, that is when all spoiler bets are off. There might be mild spoilers surrounding the game, but uh, we try to tend to avoid that. Our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews are spoiler free, and the synopsis is, of course, without spoilage. So, without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema of the Midnight Cinema. Let's hear that synopsis. I'm not giving you a character for this. Henry Spencer tries to survive his industrial environment, his angry girlfriend, and the unbearable screams of his newly born child. Yes. Yep, that's that. You know what? That's all that happens. IMDb, good job. That is what happens in this film. Unless that's in a, like an r anopsis. Did you like write that yourself? Nope. That's straight from the, the straight from the horse's mouth. Okay, good, 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 good. Because yeah, it could have been weirder. Straight from the imdb. The imdb. This is imdbanopsis. The imdbanopsis, as opposed to the artnopsis. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, enough of you this. Know, I, I saw what you were doing there. I, no one was amused. <laughs> Step up your game. All right, forget it. Just I like just... the people in 1977 watching this for the first time. Hey Arthur, step up your game, sir, and tell me, did you like Eraserhead and why? I did. Yes, I. Uh, this movie, well, the, uh, the word I think best describes is mesmerizing. I think it is entrancing. I think it is hypnotizing, and I think it is a masterpiece. I, uh, you know, this is my this is like second or third encounter with the Lynch. I've seen Blue Velvet and I have seen Twin Peaks, both thanks to Dustin. So all of my Lynch has been gifted to me by the cells. You've seen Mulholland Drive too, right? No, I didn't oh. watch that one. Oh, you missed that one. Didn't yeah, you? sadly, I uh, I need to sit down and get to it. I know, but um, yeah. So I, I mean, but this guy, uh, you know, Lynch has a reputation that precedes him definitely, and, and so I knew some things uh, going in. Uh, you know, but I don't think anything had really fully prepared me or braced me for the experience that is Eraserhead. Uh, and I'm thankful for that. It's like childbirth. There's nothing that can prepare you for it. That's a very accurate, uh, description of this movie. I think, uh, childbirth and not being prepared. I think that's, uh, really hammered home here. Uh, I, I, I greatly enjoy it. You know, there's, you know, so much to praise about it. Um, it's heavily layered with uh, symbolism and subtext, and it's got uh, you know so much going on with it. And um, I, I really like because I was reading an interview uh, just briefly with uh, that Lynch had given, you know, and you know as Dustin has mentioned before, and we kind of know he's elusive about giving you anything about what he thinks this means or what he interprets it to be. But he says, you know, and I think it's like this was all at least art cinema, but that is you know what you walk away from a racer head with is what you bring to a racer head whatever you're going through wherever you are in life you know and i think the great art is is reflective of that you know it's going to reflect you know what's going on in you and so you know whatever you take away uh from a racer head is totally based around your uh circumstances and I, I think that's a pretty applicable statement for uh just film studies and film criticism in general uh you know dustin and i had talked before on uh, the cast who knew too much about film criticism and that uh approaching a film at one point you may have a different opinion of it when you approach it 10 years later even a month later you know the circumstances change and so so much of what you uh bring into the relationship uh reflects on your experience with the uh, art in in uh in question um but yeah I, I i liked it i thought it was um very enthralling 
everybody is great. I mean, to make this work, uh, you know, it, it's it's difficult uh, because this could have been a disaster, especially with all the kind of behind the scenes stuff, not having the funding, filming for several years, and uh, I think it all comes together as a perfect storm of a movie that just works. And, and and I was really worried because sometimes when you enter a movie like this, this kind of surreal art house style, uh, it feels either really, really, really glacial and you don't know that it's ever going anywhere or going to end. Or it can be really fluid and you just kind of get wrapped into it and you don't know kind of a similar idea that where it's going to end. But there's no cohesiveness to us. And I'm thinking of something like Carew's Upstream Color, mm-hmm. which feels like a very fluid film. Um, and so I w- I was really worried about, but I feel like this pace is really well. It's got some beats that kind of drive it along. And so within that kind of, uh, art house style he's using, there's still a, a very, 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 very loose kind of structural outline that's driving the narrative along, I think. Um, and so I, I greatly appreciated that. I was kind of worried about that going in. Um, but I think it moves really tightly. I think it is just fascinating and I, I am really thankful uh, we watched this movie. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, did you like Eraserhead and why? I mean, I'm, I'm right there with Arthur. I, it, it's a masterpiece. It really is as good as you've heard. And I, I think what Arthur hit on right there at the end of his review is one of the things that I really like about it. It has, for lack of a better way to put it, all of these kind of wonderful set pieces. All of these... And again, you you hear set piece and often you think an action scene. But really, in a film like this, a set piece is just a moment that completely envelops you and propels you into the next moment in the film. Uh, And Lynch just peppers this film with... I mean, there are a lot of kind of dreamy montages of, of, of imagery. But then betwixt that are these bonkers ass set pieces that veer between outright horror and complete absurdist comedy uh and that that is kind of what is so fantastic about this film is yes it is this surreal uh fairy tale or fake you know i mean you hear all these words thrown i have heard all these words thrown around to describe eraserhead all all these times here because again this is my first viewing with eraserhead as well and much like arthur all of my exposure to lynch is because dustin made me uh mulholland drive i think blue velvet we watched together i'm pretty sure we did uh but i know mulholland we watched together and uh, we watched a couple episodes twin peaks together um and now we've watched eraserhead together and I don't know. I'm I'm a big believer that Lynch is kind of a, a filmmaker that it's really fun to experience with a group of people uh, because his films are just so out there and so so bonkers and, and wacky and yet also really deeply emotional and uh, very inquisitive and um, they're it's such a, a strange cadence that, that his films have that I, I don't really quite know how to describe them, honestly. There is something super engaging about them without and enthralling uh, while simultaneously being intentionally off-putting. Um, his, his films dare you to give up on them, I, I think, is a really interesting aspect of what he does because he does fill his his films with you know kind of grotesque imagery and uh bizarre logic 
uh, very dreamlike, surrealist logic that doesn't really quite make any sense unless you give yourself over to the film and just kind of go with it. Uh, and that is what Eraser has going for it, is these set pieces that just completely transfix you and propel you into the next scene. And we haven't even talked about the sound design in this film, which uh, is just completely insane. Um, it goes from the first moment to the final shot. There is just a hum. And obviously, you know, there will be a lot of filmmakers um, who, who play with this later on, even... Uh, you know, uh, one that uh, I, I, for a long time, was not allowed to talk about on this podcast because, frankly, when we started doing the show five years ago, I was not really as well uh, read in film as I am now. But uh, David Fincher would actively kind of ape this sound design in Seven. Some 20-some-odd years later, he would have that same oppressive hum because every everyone who wanted to make movies saw the racer head and said, wow, what sound design? What a great way to set a kind of oppressive, melancholic, nihilistic tone. But where David Fincher leans into that nihilism in something like Seven, and I, I think that's how a lot of filmmakers would use that that sound design is for, you know, horror effect or tragedy or, or again, nihilism. What, what Lynch does with it is just so much more uh, and kind of hard to quantify, really. There, there is an X factor to this film Whereas you watch it, you go, I am completely overtaken by this. And yet, I am feeling so many different things about it. I don't really know how I feel about it. Because as Arthur mentioned, uh, it's funny. This movie is hilarious at times and horrifying at others. And it just kind of coalesces into this really beautiful nightmare that uh, I can't wait to watch again. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. You know, I didn't really like it very much. There weren't any characters I could believe in, really. And, I, you know, there wasn't an emotional payoff and blah, blah, blah. No. Blah, blah, I love this movie. Where is the set in the – where in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the set? Is this after <laughs> Iron Man? Is this – now, this is a prequel to Alien, right? Right. No, I love this movie. I mean, I've seen it probably half a dozen times or so, and uh, it is, you know, it is lots of fun. Everything that's been said so far is absolutely true. Uh, you see where Lynch begins to uh, um, already is using his uh, really sort of uh, extreme kind of uh, f um, of artifice. Uh, laden dialogue and acting style where it is uh, absolutely drawing attention to the fact that it is very much an acted sort of soap opera kind of feel and you'll see more of this later in Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive and uh, Wild at Heart lots of places uh, where uh, Lo uh, Lost Highway is another good example uh, where that's going on but it's also a, a movie that is thoroughly composed that um, w where auteurism is a thing that is easily um, critiqued uh, because films are collaborative projects, this film is David Lynch's composed piece of art from start to finish. And that's not just because uh, he uh, does set design, he does sound design, uh, he directs it, he writes it, and uh, and those kind of things. It, it's because every single frame, uh, from sound to design to acting to lighting, is composed in this sort of – and Dalton uses the phrase set pieces, and I think that's for the larger chunks a good way to describe it. But each individual frame itself is sort of composed in this kind of tableau. They're all set up to be sort of individual frozen frames of fine art that just happen to move. Well, and, and what, what I would say to that is it, those set pieces really help keep your attention during those, those tableaus, those montages. 
that that frankly could be pretty easy to check out during. Yeah. And, and I think those those big kind of garish wild moments like the dinner, um, like the first time we see inside the radiator. God, none of this makes sense out of context. Um, <laughs> uh, all, all of the, the the meeting with the woman across the hall. All of these these set pieces really do propel you in these times where Henry's just kind of like walking around or where we're getting overlays of images that we don't really understand the significance or meaning of at all. Right. Um, and and that's that, that was my point. You're absolutely right, though. It, it's not just these big moments. Everything between those moments is also just as... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Deliberately crafted. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is a very, very finely crafted film. It is. It is a film that is from start to finish just thoroughly composed. There, there are times when you know the, what happens in the frame. Sometimes, I mean, we we talk a lot about Hollywood intentionality and those kind of things, and uh, how uh, set design is on purpose and lines of dialogue are on purpose, and there's nothing extraneous, and, and uh, that is generally true of all Hollywood cinema. But there is a there is a real thoroughness to making sure that we want this plot of plant here, we want this image here, we want this to look exactly like this. This is where we want the light to fall. This is how we want it to fade. I mean, there is um, just a, a high attention. To artifice, and uh, as an, uh, a film that took him five years to make, uh, with funding coming and going, him living in the stable that was uh, part of the uh, set uh, for the film, it is uh, just a, it's just a, it's a monumental uh, piece of art. And honestly, had David Lynch's career ended with Eraserhead, Mel Brooks never noticed him and uh, funded him to do Elephant Man next. Uh, this still would be a monumental moment in you know American cinema history. And so, yeah, it, it's a movie I like a lot um, and for the reasons that everybody has said so far. And so, yeah, uh, this is anti-trash marathon, and this is definitely anti-trash for my book. Uh, so, yeah, we definitely have biases that are pro when it comes to Eraserhead. We do not wish to rub this one out, I think. So, without any further ado, uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you have anything you want to say about uh social media and the conversation i'm sorry you said rub this one out and it just made me think of all the sperm imagery in this film oh uh, that way of rubbing out yeah sorry about that i was making a pencil joke. yeah no I, I knew what you were doing but you accidentally made another joke hi it's me uh time time for that part of the show where i talk for a long time and dustin and arthur kind of glare at me and wish it was over that's, that's right about 90 percent of the show i love you too buddy it's social media <laughs> corner uh you can engage with us we we like that the, we 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 would do this no matter what. Arthur, Dustin, and I, um, we watched this together uh, in my apartment, and we kind of talked about it after the fact. And you know what? That could just be the end of it. Uh, but we like putting this conversation out there. We like sharing it with people. We want to know what you think. Um, we 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 do this for you. I mean, we do it for ourselves, too. Let's not get, you know, let's, come on. We just enjoy doing this, uh, but we hope you like that we're doing it. Uh, and if you want to let us know your thoughts on it, there's a lot of ways you can do that. Um, first and foremost, we are on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, Arthur and Dustin, uh, not Dustin, Dustin doesn't do anything with that. Arthur and I uh, check that basically every single day uh, throughout the day. Um, so if there's any thoughts you have on there, we, we try to get the conversation going on Twitter from time to time, make you uh, think about uh, what's going on in film because again that twitter account is not just for this show the good trash honor cast that is the twitter account for good trash media as a whole uh we try to uh you know bring you the news uh thoughts on what's going on in, in film and also just kind of let you know what we're going to be doing on our shows um so that's good underscore trash we're also on facebook.com that's facebook.com forward slash gtm we don't really use that and frankly neither should you uh facebook is a travesty upon this earth and honestly so is twitter most of the time so uh Keep that in mind. Use accordingly. 
Um, I feel like all social media should have a big sticker on it, just like a pack of cigarettes. Just be careful. Use in moderation and know that it's bad for you. Um, if you don't want to engage with the Internet at large but still want to talk to us, that's great. Uh, you can reach out to us uh, via email. And I always forget that email address. So, Arthur, go ahead and tell the nice people what that is. It is goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. That's, that's right. I always think, want to say it's Good Trash Media. So that's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. If you have a lengthier thought on something we said, uh, send, send us an email. Um, we would be more than happy to share portions of your thoughts on the show um, if you send any of that in. Uh, lastly, uh, we do appreciate, as all podcasts do, if you rate, review, and subscribe to the show and your, uh, however you get this into your, uh, your ears, you know, do, do that thing. Uh, it is helpful for visibility for us. Uh, but most importantly, just tell your friends about it. Uh, th- that's the only way that uh, this gets into more heads is um, if you share it with the people you care about. Because uh, we care about you. I mean, we, we do have these conversations because we want to be part of your film discourse. We want to help you think about films. This is not – our thoughts on movies are not the end-all, be-all. Trust me. We're a bunch of dum-dums. Uh, well, Dustin's pretty smart. Uh, but, okay, yeah, he's a dum-dum, too. Yeah. Uh, we are limited in our worldviews and our experiences, and we just want to say, look, this is what we think based on how we have lived our lives and the media that we have in, in, enjoyed and consumed. What are your thoughts? Um, we we want to help stir that. Even if you never share them with us, that's fine. We just want to help you think about movies, especially you know throughout the rest of the, the year when we're doing good trash films. We want to you know talk about RoboCop. Or, um, I don't know, what, what's another pretty trashy movie we've done recently? Um, recently? Flatliners. Bright. Yeah. Bright, yeah. We, wa- we want to talk about films that should either be consumed like candy and go, ooh, that's good, or consumed like old pizza and go, oh, fuck, that was bad. We want you to do that and then still think about it. So that's, that's all Bright's the, the old pizza in this analogy. Uh, Robocop's the candy. I think old pizza's too good for Bright. I, well, like too old pizza where you're like, I can't remember how long this has been in the fridge. Oh, and like you penicillin ro- on my pizza? Yeah, you like kind of roll the dice on it anyway. I see. Yeah, that's what I'm talking or about. Or you might have to take it to your leader. Yeah, you might be sick for the rest of the week. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but we, we want to we encourage those thoughts in you, and we want you to share those with the people you love. We want you to take your appreciation of cinema to the next level, and we want to help you facilitate that. Uh, so share the love. Uh, if you care about people uh, in your life, uh, liking movies uh, or thinking about them more critically, share the show with them. Um, and, of course, uh, if you do want to contribute to us monetarily, that's not something you have to do, but you can do that at patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, that is where you help us keep our lights on. We are in the process of getting together some bonus content for you over there. Uh, that way, you know, we, we tried a couple of years ago. Uh, we tried this Patreon thing once before, and we, we thought, yeah, we'll make stickers and, and send you cards. And uh, um, our, our beloved friend uh, and former collaborator, Alex Bohannon, was really um, – the the spear charger on helping make that physical stuff as was Caleb Masters. Uh the the three of us are frankly far too disorganized to do that. We're really just good at talking on, on microphones. That's that's our bread and butter. So instead of giving you physical things, we figured let's play to our strengths and just give you more stuff to listen to. Um so those are going to be a bulk of the rewards. Uh but again there's lots of stuff. We're going to send you DVD care packages at certain levels. So go over to patreon.com forward slash GTM for more info on that if you're inclined to do so. Uh that helps pay hosting fees helps uh, replace mic cables that start shorting out. Uh, also helps uh, just spread the word, honestly. Um, and uh, finally, let's go ahead and do a little bit of cross-promotion. Uh, we do have one other show on this network that's currently active. 
Uh, we've had lots of shows in the past, but only two right now that are active. The other one is The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. Um, they are also uh, a big part of Good Trash Media, and uh, we love what they do over there. That's uh, The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, where uh, two very, very funny boys uh, talk about Christian music with a guest um, who uh, has some sort of background with Christian music, regardless of their current faith leanings. Um, I feel like when people hear the pitch of the show, two comedians talking about Christian rock music, I think uh, they immediately assume it's very punchy downy. Uh, and that's not what the show is at all. It, it really is kind of a a deliberate celebration of a maligned art form, uh, which, yeah, for obvious reasons, that's something we kind of gravitated to. And it doesn't hurt that Heath is my roommate, but uh, th- their heads are in kind of the same place that our heads are at. So that's why we like collaborating with those uh, those folks over there. And uh, they might even have some uh, bonus content for you, too. Uh, if you're a real big Praise Down fan and you only listen to Good Trash Honorcast occasionally, um, still check out that Patreon account because we're, we're working on putting – they're working on putting together, I should say, their Silly Marillion, uh, which is uh, a bunch of cut bits uh, from their podcast that uh, they're trying to stitch together into a, a bonus reel. So maybe we'll find you'll find that over on the Patreon at some point, too. So uh, that's Social Media Corner. I'm done. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. As the time has run very, very fast, it is now time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. And we're back with the game that everybody plays and nobody wins, just like poor Henry. Uh, This week's game is our favorite cinematic puppets. That's right, favorite cinematic puppets brought to you by Eraserhead. Eraserhead, if you didn't know there was a puppet in this movie, consider that a spoiler. We're now into mild spoiler territory. Yeah, when E.T. shows up, though, it's pretty good. It's Weeble Wobble E.T. God damn. I know a lot of people uh, already know about that. Who, people who are just familiar with Race Rider but are, have never seen it are aware of the puppet that is Henry's baby. Um, but Arthur was not, and I was so glad to get to watch your reaction to that. Um, yeah, there, there's a, a grotesque and somewhat cute uh, puppet in this film. Not cute when he's sick. And, no, it's very horrifying. Damn, that puppet is wild. The eyes especially are what threw, blew me away. And I don't know if it's because of the black and white photography that make it look so otherworldly and real. It it really does just sit on one side of the canny, uncanny valley enough that it looks very real. It's it, The puppetry is hard to see. Yes. And so we are going to, um, it, it inspired by uh, Henry's, um, bizarre progeny. We are going to discuss our favorite cinematic puppets, I guess, round robin style as we do typically these days. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your first selection for your favorite cinematic puppets? I'm going to throw out one who is just a cutie, and the movie has already been mentioned, and that is Ed 209. Ed 209 is just an adorable little little fella, uh, especially when it's turned over on his back. Yeah, with, like machine gu- with machine guns for arms. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's just uh, – he's really well-constructed, um, and he looks – it's a really cool design, I think, for you know this kind of futuristic police bot um, that's <laughs> extremely horrifying as well. Um, but there is just this charm about Ed 209, and I don't know what it is, but there's just something cute about him. And he's kind of like a turtle. Uh, especially when he gets turned over and he can't get back up. And it's just the most adorable thing. But I think he's a lot of fun. It's so fun. I think what works so well about having Ed 209 be like the heavy in RoboCop is that it's this implement of death and destruction that's completely incompetent. 
uh, yeah. I think that that really is what makes it so cute. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there is a sweetness to that that yeah. puppet. That is just so helpless when it goes on stairs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just does does not do well with stairs. Oh, neither do I. So I uh, we're kindred spirits. What a design oversight. I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, really. That's so. Funny. Yeah, criminals are never running upstairs in the, in the future. It's Detroit. There are lots of tall buildings. <laughs> You never thought that this thing might have to go up some fucking stairs? He Not takes, once. Ed, Ed takes the elevator. <laughs> Always takes the I'm elevator. pretty sure he's going to exceed the weight limit on most <laughs> elevators. That's funny. And the guy from Ghostbusters sees him, goes in, and says, I'll take the next one. <laughs> for sure, for sure. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your first selection? My first selection is, is another... Uh, bit of real puppet wizardry that doesn't really hide its strings uh, quite as much as Eraserhead does, and that is The Thing from The Thing, uh, the, the wonderful John Carpenter film uh, that really only came out a few years after Eraserhead, which is kind of weird to think about. Uh, Eraserhead feels so hard to pin down time-wise. It could have come out at any time, which is really interesting. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, I, I think uh, in terms of puppet wizardry that they share some dna uh, especially in terms of grotesquery uh but the thing puppets are are all i mean again i've, I've only seen the film in the the post-computer era so that that you know if you saw the thing in theaters in 1982 you might have a different opinion than i do but i feel like there's an intentional uh not hiding of the strings that i really like acknowledging the artifice which uh you know lynch does throughout all of his films i really appreciate any time a film in whatever capacity it chooses to acknowledge hey you know this is this is all made up silly make-believe right uh lynch does that with kind of weird canned performances and intentionally um tenured dialogue and i think john carpenter's the thing does that by really writing uh and directing some pretty deep and profound human emotion uh, with, you know, gory puppets that, you know, don't look real. I mean, frankly, they don't. At, at the end of the day, there's not... You don't look at that that head with spider legs and think, that's a real head. You know it's not a real head. You're not a dummy. Uh, and yet, the grotesqueness of it uh, really kind of envelops you and, and horrifies you. Despite, And I think that's what good, like, especially if we're talking about horror puppets, uh, they have to kind of acknowledge that, that you have to be able to see the strings to some extent. Otherwise it would honestly be a little too much probably. Uh, but that's my first pick. Uh, I, I wish I could remember some of the names, uh, attached to the, uh, the, the special effects wizardry in that film. I, I know, I think Stan Winston did some uncredited work on there, but I know there was like one guy in particular that did most of the work and like worked himself into an illness. Uh, we talked a lot about this when we actually discussed the thing on the show. Um, none of that research is, uh, coming to mind at this moment but what what an absolute uh, accomplishment in terms of uh, special effects wizardry absolutely absolutely thank you very much for that mr donaldson i'm gonna go a little bit more lo-fi um this particular puppet uh, made his debut in television but eventually made his way to the cinemas and i'm talking about the one the only kermit the frog um i love that puppet because all kermit is is a glorified sock puppet for the most part but there is so much pathos there's so much emotion that's able to be communicated in kermit the frog that there's so much delight there's so much uh, wonder there's so much sadness um irritation uh frustration anger i mean it is just one of the most expressive puppets uh in 
you know, again, sort of cinema history. And uh, it's just a sock puppet green with eyeballs on it, you know, with a hi-ho sort of weird voice. And uh, I just I, – I mean I love the Muppets anyway. Uh, Kermit is obviously the headliner of all of that stuff and the only one who, uh, who uh, is cross-listed in the Henson Workshop with Sesame Street and with the Muppet Show. Uh, but I, I just love me some Kermit, and I think that is a brilliant – I, performance. I mean, I, you have to give some credit to Jim Henson himself, I'm sure, but uh, also just the design of the puppet itself. Saying, you know what, we don't do too much because if you look like Bert and Ernie or the Cookie Monster or something like that, they're both really sort of flat. You know, there's not the open mouth, closed mouth degrees of openness and closedness. But uh, Kermit is very, very emotional and uh, very evocative, and so I'm a big Kermit the Frog fan. So that is my number our number first pick of of cinematic puppets. I go to you now again, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your next selection? Uh I want to give a shout out to Baby Spencer's cousin, uh the Chestburster from Alien. Nice. Um such a good pick. The the Chestburster is so fascinating. I mean, it looks great. It's, it's they do a great job with it covering, you know, gore and all that stuff and it works perfectly. Um but that puppet's really there for that one scene, and it just runs across the room, and we don't see it. But it's so memorable uh, because it's part of such a horrifying, you know, set piece moment in that film. Well, good um, thing is he does get that musical number in Spaceballs. I know he he finally got his due, and I think that's uh, what the world was clamoring for. <laughs> I think so. And so when we get Alien the musical, I am I am ready. <laughs> I am I, I am ready set. Uh, all all good to go there, um, and so. But the chestburster is is beautiful, and and uh, you know there's some very memorable puppets, uh, you know, in that movie. The the face hugger itself is also very memorable. Uh, the xenomorph is obviously a guy in a suit, and uh, it looks great. But uh, when they do use the puppets in that film, they 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 look great. They don't feel out of place. They don't feel absurd. Uh, which is a fine line to cross, I think, uh, when you're dealing with puppetry, and, and much like the thing. Um, if you do it right and you you add that you, you, you've like I, I I like the way Dalton put it, you know, showing the strings a little bit uh, helps you to kind of, you know, I think handle it and grasp it in, in the narrative. And I, and I think that works. And I think the chestburster is a great example of that as well. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say for your next pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, my next pick is actually kind of related uh, to Kermit the Frog, uh, and that is Yoda. Ah, yes. uh, not only in terms of just being a green puppet, but also Frank Oz. Uh, I, I don't know if it's Frank Oz's like kind of just majestic voice uh, and his abilities as a voiceover uh, artist uh, or if it's the puppet itself. But man, that damn Yoda just really makes you feel things. Uh, and it is, again, we keep talking about artifice when we talk about puppets. You know Yoda's a puppet. Yoda does not look real. And yet... That puppet inspires you. It draws emotion out of you uh, across all the films that that it's in. Uh, that puppet is so good that when they turned it into a cartoon, you still didn't care. Uh, Frank Oz's voice and the the actual design of the character, uh, puppet or CGI, really just kind of envelops you and invests you. It forces you to invest emotion in it. See, that's interesting to me because I prefer the string showing puppet. Oh, I do too. By a lot. Oh, I mean, same. The CGI Yoda is fine. I'm not mad about no, it. No, no, no. I'm saying the CGI Yoda would not work as well if it wasn't for the puppet the 20 puppet years in the prior. Background, yeah. yeah, no, the, the puppet in, you know, 80 and 83 is the reason you care about the cartoon in 2002 and 2005. Uh, we're not going to talk about Phantom Menace where the puppet looked bad for the first time ever and then they replaced it with the CG. That's a whole fucking thing we're not going to get into. I'm saying the CGI Yoda that we would get to know later 
I, I think the only reason that one in, is able to get emotion out of you is because you're already invested in the puppet itself. That's how good that puppet is. That's fair. That's fair. And I do like The Last Jedi's Yoda mm-hmm. you know, quite a bit better, too. Well, I think that that's just a really great puppet that's been CGI'd in the scene to look like a ghost, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of a cool choice. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's probably the best that puppet's looked since 83, yeah. which is really fun. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, it's fun that we we both picked uh, an adorable green boy uh, voiced by uh, Frank Oz. Uh, because Frank Oz does do uh, Kermit, right? I'm uh, not just... No, Jim does. Oh, was it Jim Henson? Jim Jim did Kermit. Why did I think Frank Oz did Kermit? I don't know. Frank idiot. Oz only got one voice. Grover and Yoda. Okay. I... It's the same voice. You're, you're absolutely right. I've never, it's never occurred to me, and you're absolutely well, there's right. There's that. It's just syntax. It's the only difference between Grover and Yoda. Well, I'm glad we, uh, I'm glad we cleared <laughs> that up uh, before we, we just, like, on the record, That's I said. That's going to be the name of my memoir. <laughs> Who who does uh, Kermit now? They just get a sound alike for uh, Jim. There's a sound. I don't know who it is now, but yeah, I think I think it's a sound alike. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's Yoda's my next pick. All right, thank you very much. So we're going from the adorable to uh, the man eating uh, in my next selection, which is uh, a man eating shark called Bruce. Uh, Bruce the shark from the Jaws film. Uh, I love love that shark. It is very very realistic, and yet it's not realistic. There's a, the famous line in Back to the Future where Marty McFly says something to the extent of the shark still looks fake. The reason why is because sharks don't look like they're real, and it does very much uh, capture the idea of a real shark. The way in which Steven Spielberg is able to use that puppet alongside some real sort of archival um, marine biologist kind of footage of great white sharks and uh, to work it so well together uh, with Bruce the shark. Bruce is just great, and I love that shark from Jaws, and so that is my number next pick for favorite cinematic puppets. Number last pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart. No, not Dalton Stewart. Arthur Gordon, I'm sorry. Uh, What do you want? Don't insult me. (laughs) Sorry. I'm going to keep the Spielberg train uh running down the tracks because there are no puppets better than the dinosaurs from jurassic park um these glorious beautiful creatures that brought a kid's dreams to life and put them on screen look fantastic to this day none of the jurassic park movies have been able to top that design like the t-rex head especially is what i'm thinking yeah the t-rex the the triceratops in the field Mm -hmm. is beautiful the raptors themselves look gorgeous and uh, I, I think the worst decision that the Jurassic World made in a string of bad decisions uh, was using CG uh, raptors uh, because they added so much substance and texture to that original film. Uh, they're living and breathing dinosaurs, and you couldn't convince me otherwise. Like, that's how good those dinosaurs look. Yeah. That's how good those animatronics look. And. I love them. That, that movie resonates with me to this day, and, and it's because of that design of those puppets in that film that brought those creatures we never thought we'd see in the flesh uh, to life. That's an excellent number last pick. I thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you for your number last pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, uh, honestly, I'm surprised I didn't have to uh, abandon this one uh, because it is a puppet uh, that comes from a franchise that I know Arthur has a lot of affection for. Uh, and that is Chucky from Child's Play, oh, nice. uh, as voiced by Brad Dourif. I don't know who the puppet performers are, uh, but uh, Brad Dourif's voice performance is a big part of what makes that character work. Yeah. And I know you have a lot of love for this franchise, Arthur. I I I, uh, I think the third one where uh, it's the kid, I forget what else that actor's been in, where they go to the military school, though. Uh, yeah. and it's the kid from the first one, like, ten years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only one I've seen several times, because he used to run it on sci-fi a lot when I was a kid, but... Uh, 
man, especially in part three, I really love the uh, the stitched together look of the puppet in that yeah. one. Um, what a horrifying creation. Uh, I mean, really, and again, there's been a lot of joking throughout the years uh, and decades of what a silly conceit child's play is because, yeah, you could just punt that thing across the yeah. room. Um, but that's, I think, a big part of why they started to lean into the, the comedy of it. But also, there is something deeply horrifying about children's dolls. Uh, the uncanny valley exists for a reason. We put a name to that feeling because when something looks like a human a lot, but not enough, it's deeply upsetting. And they captured what is so weird about a Cabbage Patch Kid and turned it into a fucking murder machine. And that's kind of brilliant. And the the craft with which they create that doll and make it just look too real, just that much too real, yeah. uh, that much too much like a person, um, really is what sells the effect for me. Um, and again, the the voice uh, or the mouth puppetry is a really big selling point. Like it's got an that puppet has such an expressive face. Um, I didn't even when we were when I was talking about Yoda, I didn't think of talk about his eyes. His eyebrows mm-hmm. are really what are so expressive. With Chucky, it's his eyebrows uh, and his forehead, but also the mouth uh, because they sync with Brad Dourif's voice so well that it really just sells the effect. Yeah, that's a damn possessed doll. Um, and again, I'm, I'm kind of surprised I didn't have to you know, uh, eject that one at the last second and think of something else. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to, because I wanted to talk about what a great, bizarre little puppet that thing is. And what a great performer Brad Dourif is. He's I'm, so good. He's really, yeah. really good. I recently, I was re- rewatching some Babylon 5, and he's got a one-episode uh, one-off, and he is brilliant in that. So I do look that up, dear listener, if you are interested in the more Dourif in your life, because we all need a little bit more of that, don't we? I mean, yeah, for yeah. sure. Oh, also Deadwood. Deadwood, yeah. He's so good on Deadwood. So uh, my number last pick is uh, from the horror genre as well, uh, and it is a uh, uh, it is a puppet that is very very short on stage and then or on screen and then is replaced by an actor in a costume. But I'm talking about the resurrection of Frank in Hellraiser. The resurrection body when it's moving up from the blood falls through. Yeah. And, and Ooh, that's a good one. Man, yeah. that puppet uh, in those moments it just before uh, w- the next cut of the scene when it stand when he stands up and he's finally talking. Yeah. But I, man, I tell you what, I love yeah. that creature design. It is amazing. It is in a weird way beautiful and terrifying at the same time. Yeah. It is that sort of capturing that beautiful grotesque that Lynch is doing here that I think uh, Guillermo del Toro does in some of his films as well. Um, but Clive Barker. Um, in his uh, set design and his uh, direction there for uh, his uh, FX house uh, while working on Hellraiser is um, top notch and one of the great sort of uh, puppetry moments in cinema uh, for my money. So that is an all-time favorite of mine. Dear listener, we'd like to hear your favorite cinematic puppets. There are many. And so if you you fancy yourself to be, uh, say, a master of puppets and know many things about them, uh, you can say those. Yeah, you just couldn't let it go, could you? No. You couldn't let it go. No, no, I can't. Okay. I like it. It makes me happy. And it's it's my show now, and I can say what I want. And so if you want to tell us about that, you can do that via those magical means of social media. But we are not going to talk about it anymore because it's time for us to get down to business. And we are back bringing you some analysis of David Lynch's Eraserhead, a film that perhaps denies um, any sort of interpretation because of its just 
bonkers, just bat crazy madness. Um, and then the reason why is because the way the film's constructed. And I wanted to begin before we get very much further, guys. I have a copy. I, I have several David Lynch books in my possession, but uh, the one I brought with me today is the one by David Lynch himself, which is his uh, book on meditation, consciousness, and creativity called Catching the Big Fish. Right, which what an adorable man. Uh, yeah, uh, and so I, I really don't want to find out he's an asshole because, as far as I can tell, he seems like a real sweetheart. But this is why he's so difficult to wrap your brain around. He has a little mini chapter here on consciousness. This I will just begin here at the beginning of the chapter. Little fish swim on the surface, but the big ones swim down below. If you can expand the container you're fishing in, your consciousness, you can catch bigger fish. He goes on to talk a little bit about transcendental meditation, and then he says this. If you have a golf ball-sized consciousness, when you read a book, you'll have golf ball-sized understanding. When you look out a window, a golf ball-sized awareness. When you wake up in the morning, a golf ball-sized wakefulness. And go about your, li- your day, golf ball-sized inner happiness. And then he just goes on to talk about growing and fishing because this is how this man thinks. I just – what? He's the best. No, I'm I, totally I, there for it. I am there for it too. But I'm just like this is why it's so difficult. Right? Yeah, because he is a guy that does seem to uh, defy categorization by intent. Like he, he, he refuses to allow things to be categorized because he doesn't want them to be categorized. He, he wants you to dig deeper. And he he intentionally makes films, I think, that if you have a hard time, you know, if you are somebody who watches films at only a surface level, I think his intent is to turn you off a little bit with his films. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and here's his um, here's his little statement on interpretation of films. He has a statement. Hell on, yes. Hit so, me. All right. A film should stand on its own. It's absurd if a filmmaker needs to say what a film means in words. The world in a film is a created one, and people sometimes love going into the world. For them, that world is real. And if people find out certain things about how something was done or how this means this or that means that, the next time they see the film, these things enter into into the experience, and then the film becomes different. Boo. Ooh, are you – is that it? Uh, one more okay, sentence. Okay, And I, I think it's so precious and important to maintain that world and not say certain things that could break the experience. See, and, and I think a great jumping-off point real quick. So I think this will be a great place for us to start this conversation. Let's talk about two, uh, you know, contem- not contemporaries, two, two filmmakers who are contemporaries of one another who have both shown in – shown in throughout their careers that they are influenced by Lynch. Uh, and that's going to be uh, Christopher Nolan. Yes. Um, and, um, oh, my God. I, I knew know. this was going to happen. Uh, Pi. Uh, Aronofsky. Aronofsky. Thank you. Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan. Uh, Aronofsky does Pi for his first feature. Uh, Nolan does Following for his first feature. And both of those are very clearly influenced, not just by Lynch uh, in particular uh, or in general, but specifically by Eraserhead. Yeah. He's kind of moody black and white uh films that kind of dip their toes into german expressionism and also film noir and also just kind of being odd christopher nolan early in his career does a q and a um for memento and he corrects uh somebody in the audience somebody in the audience asks a question he corrects them and his brother jonathan says to him afterwards you can't do that man you can't do that you just invalidated that person's experience of the movie we made together uh and he never did it again mm-hmm. meanwhile you've got darren aronofsky who makes this buck wild ass movie mother and then goes, yeah, it's an allegory for, uh, you know, Mother Nature and time. And 
makes his movie less interesting. Yeah. Uh, because the much more interesting interpretation of Mother is, man, being in a relationship with Darren Aronofsky seems like the fucking worst. Um, and without him saying anything, he gets to seem like a real self-aware guy who goes, man, it's really hard to, to be a good partner and a good father when you're obsessed with your own creativity. Um, that's a much more interesting film. And now I know that he's too dumb to realize that. And I feel bad dogging on him like that, but that's what he, and again, maybe he just isn't willing to say publicly that that's what the movie's about. Uh, but that's what it seems like it's about to me. Uh, and again, I think that school of thinking is just more productive for everyone to say, I'm not going to tell you what the movie's about because I don't want to ruin it for you. I think we could move into, you know, tourism has already come up today, mm-hmm. uh, as Dustin mentioned earlier, and you have to take it with a grain of salt. There are very few uh, directors who you can actually apply tourism to. I think Lynch is definitely one of them. Um, but as Andrew Sarah said, uh, in talking about tourism, you, you can't take the author's interview, the, the director's interview uh, into that account uh, when you're, you know, reading into these films, you know. Uh, the director may say one thing, you know, for publicity purposes, he may discuss it as this. As you were mentioning with Aronofsky, you know, maybe he's just blowing smoke in the audiences. Well, that well, sounds he, like uh, Alfred Hitchcock, too. Yeah. Well, and he even talked about I, I remember seeing a, a snippet of him talking about how painful it was personally to write yeah. the film, which leads you to believe, oh, he understands, like, how much of himself is in this movie. And then he'll say things about how it's just about, you know, Mother Nature. Yeah. And it's like, oh. What? Yeah. What are you doing? And you're right. Maybe maybe he is just too embarrassed to admit like, oh, I made this because I was not a good husband to Rachel Weiss, and yeah. like I feel like I'm not. I feel like a failure as a father sometimes because yeah. that that's beautiful. Somebody yeah. who's willing to be like, I made this movie that's essentially about how I'm insecure about whether yeah. or not I'm a good person. Uh, and when you take a film that is, you know fully almost attributed to one person, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's where tourism becomes so shaky. Um, this, in any art, you know, whether it's a visual medium, whether it is music, whether it is a book, you know, whatever the art form, uh, when it is attributed to one author or one artist, uh, so much of the subconscious, uh, you know, arises and is invested into that work without them maybe even realizing that it's there or maybe even wanting to acknowledge it's there because it is hard to acknowledge sometimes. You're absolutely right. Uh, those those things that lay dormant in, in the subconscious. And so I, I think all that has to be, you know, kind of thought about, you know, when uh, approaching his works. And I, I think Lynch is really nailing it. You know, it's it's I think it's great that he doesn't want to put his thought out there because he doesn't want to disrupt other people's readings. Yeah, well, it's, it's a regime of power. What it ends yeah. up doing, it dominates all possible readings. Yeah. Neil Gaiman's got a famous quote uh, where he's talking about how. Uh, Works of art are sentient in a way. They're like small children that you raise for a time, and then um, after you've completed the work, you let it go off in the world to grow up to become whatever it becomes. And you may have intentions and plans and ideas for what you wanted that child to be, but no. that child sort of makes its own decisions, yeah. and the, the circumstances and the people around it make decisions too that also form that child, and that's what forms that piece of art afterward. Well, I, I, I think Blade Runner is a great example here because yes. we have so much debate. You know, the, the question after the movie ends you know that people want to debate is Deckard a replicant right that's the big thing that people want to talk about after the film and for Ridley Scott to give a definite answer you know well he is a replicant that takes so much away from the film and it also puts the focus on something that is so irrelevant to the movie absolutely it's not about you know Deckard being a replicant it shouldn't be about that argument it's the, the the debates after watching that movie, shouldn't be about disproving that theory or not. They should be about engaging with the, the larger themes at work within the film. Well, and I think what it 
and, and again, I, I think what's great about Lynch is it would be very easy to perceive that refusal to discuss the film as intentional obfuscation or um, just being obtuse to be an asshole for, for no particular reason other than to be obtuse. And, and it, it's nice to see him say, no, of course, I'm, as Dustin mentioned, there's a power differential. If the director says, well, this is what the movie's about, then that completely invalidates all discourse because then you've got the artist themselves saying, well, this is what the film is about. And again, especially in a production where, uh, you know, something not like Eraserhead, uh, no examples bear mentioning, but for most films, um, it is such a collaborative process that not only does it invalidate the public discourse or the academic discourse, it invalidates the work of everyone else on the film. For the director to say, well, it's my movie and this is what it's about. Well, what about what the production designer thought it was about? What about what the editor thought it was about or the composer? Or one of the the actors. Or one of the actors. What what does it say for, you know, Harrison Ford's performance of Deckard for the... And again, that's that's really where you get in the weeds with it because the creation of characters is so collaborative in terms of director and actor and writer. Um, There is at least a three-person minimum collaboration right there on any given character in a film. You get that for every single character, not just the, the leads. Um, and it, to, to say, well, this character represents this, well, that invalidates that actor's performance entirely. Absolutely, yeah. Now, that all being said, <laughs> let's get into Eraserhead <laughs> because get, it, it very clearly is Lynch. His thumbprint is all over the there, film. There, okay, there, so I would say this film definitely contains multitudes, mm-hmm. and there's tons of things going on. There are tons of possibilities for interpretation, but there is a, a certain biggie on the eye chart uh, regarding the film. It's which is, I guess, obvious, narratively obvious. It's about fear of fatherhood. Yeah, and, which makes sense because he just now, as a seven-year-old man, had his first child. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, especially you know, in 1977, when the film's released, Lynch would have been t- 31 when mm-hmm. it was released. So he would have been in his late 20s while he was making it. I think that's a time when everybody, uh, anybody who uh, chooses to have uh, sex with uh, you know somebody they could biologically reproduce with, and even if you can't, I think. In your late 20s, regardless of who your, your sexual partners are, I think it's when you start thinking about whether or not you want to pass on what knowledge you've got and mm-hmm. whether or not you think having another person you're responsible for is going to be important for your life and your growth. Uh, so I think it's only natural that in his late 20s he starts thinking, you know, gets out of art school in Philadelphia, leaves the AFI Institute that he studied at for a little bit and starts thinking, shit, am I going to make movies or am I going to have kids? Because I don't think I can do both. Because it's a terrible idea. To do both? Did or do you have kids? <laughs> Your children will listen to this someday. They I won't. need you to know that you're they right. They'll they, never they listen. They probably are I love them desperately. Play. I know you do. Uh, but yeah, it seems real fucking hard uh, just watching you do it over the last five years of knowing you. Uh, you're the only one here with kids, so we're going to have to default to you a lot. But yeah, it, it, and so it is wrestling with all of the anxieties. And so there, uh, the, the sperm imagery is huge, right? The, the movie opens with basically the impregnation, right? That's the uh, the long, you know, flagellant thing coming out of Henry's mouth. It seems to be this is how, you know, him and Mary. Um, got, unconventionally. <laughs> uh, unconventionally. Uh, how the Virgin Mary became the not-so-Virgin Mary and, uh, and, and conceived um, that thing. That E.T. Weeble Wobble. Yeah, um, the the, un, the unnamed baby. Yeah, the mutant baby, um, as some synopses have said. Uh, and, and, and the rest of it is just like, 
well, when you have a baby, is it going to make it? Is it going to be okay? Am I going to break this thing? Is it going to – they, they wreck your lives. You don't get to sleep ever. I, I leaned over to Dalton. There's a scene in the film in which the baby's crying and mom's getting up and down, and she's getting very, very frustrated. And I said, this may be the most realistic scene in the entire film uh, because, yeah, that's what it's like. It's awful. Yeah, yeah everyone's just on edge because uh, they can't sleep. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean – and and dad sleeps better than mom does, and uh, that's very frustrating for mom. It's just I, – Biological fact. When did you first see Eraserhead? When I first saw Eraserhead, I'd already had kids when I'd first I was seen wondering. it. Yeah. Okay. So maybe it's coloring my viewing a lot. But I, I feel like that's the biggie on the eye chart, though. No, right? I mean, because no, oh, 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 for, for us, definitely, yeah. I mean, for, you know, I'm going to speak for Dalton for a second, I mean, who's engaged, probably has, you know, plans or has thought about it at least. Hey, buddy, kids. most of what I talk about in therapy is my anxiety about yeah. being a dad. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm turned 31. Me and my wife want to have kids, and so that's definitely in the background of my mind. So I mean, it's definitely there, uh, you know. And so I, th- I think for us, it's definitely the biggie on the eye chart. Uh, but I would wonder, you know, for other others who, you know, maybe don't want to have kids, or you know, uh, ladies. I mean, you know, women may view this and have a different opinion of it com- completely. And so, uh, you know, I'm curious about that. Yeah. But I, I was just wondering though if you'd seen this pre kids. No, if- I was in my mid 20s when I saw it the first okay. time. I mean, and in relation to the children, there does seem to be a lot of uh, discussion of anxieties about sex as a whole. Right. Regardless of whether or not they result in children. Oh, children Uh, ruin your sex life. Well, and I think Lynch is engaging with, you know, knowing that intellectually. Without having children, he knows intellectually if you have a child, your sex life is over to some extent. Uh, And this is expressed through him and Mary, just like their relationship kind of exploding and then uh, him trying to court. Uh, that's a strong word for it. Uh, him trying to bang this girl across the hall. Court's a strong word for court, it. Court, court is, yeah. Um, I mean, he brings her home to have sex with her. and In his dream. Oh, that's, maybe. Well, we, we, ne- we don't I know. I don't know. Who knows? knows? Maybe, maybe not. Whether he actually does try to have sex with her or he just fantasizes about it, he knows that baby is going to make that impossible because that is his primary responsibility. Uh, and I, I think maybe even more than fatherhood uh, – if that's the big E on the eye chart, I think the subtext underneath that is responsibility. Yeah. Henry doesn't want to be responsible or accountable for anything. And I think the idea that he's going to be forced to be accountable for his actions petrifies him. Right. Uh, because throughout the film, we see uh, this character credited as the man in the planet. And I think the planet is, for me, as I'm watching the film, and again, listener, this is we're all talking out of our asses. We don't know what any of this means. Um, this is like trying to say what a cloud means. But the, we keep seeing this planet, and it feels like that's Henry's mind. Mm-hmm. And the man in the planet is like Henry. Henry's um, projection of himself is like his inner Henry that's pulling the levers. Um, and he wants to assign responsibility to this guy that's pulling all the levers. No, man, you're the one making the calls at the end of the day. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Bingo, because the man behind the curtain is irrelevant. Your actions, your choices, regardless of your intent, are how you're going to be defined and how people are going to view you. And and I think he has a real anxiety about that, about uh, Henry the character. And again, we have to assume that Henry is a stand-in for David Lynch because, um, oh my God, the actor's name escaped. Jack Jack Nance. Nance. Jack Nance has his hair styled kind of much more uh, garishly and comically, but he's got a certain amount of David Lynch hair going on, right? It's cropped at the side. It's big and tall up top. Uh, this is the big, the tall hair guy club. I can relate. Hey, David, how's it going? <laughs> um, but, uh, and he wears suits, very kind of slim cut suits, similar to, to Lynch has throughout his entire life. 
we have to assume that Jack Nance is being treated as a stand-in for David Lynch. Absolutely. So there seems to be, whether the character or Lynch expressing himself, if we assume that that character represents Lynch, that character has anxiety not just about fatherhood, but about responsibility, about his accountability to the world. And I think that's a where, uh, without jumping tracks too much, that's where this kind of almost dystopian cityscape comes into play because this cityscape kind of represents for me watching the film. I I kept thinking about how this cityscape relates to Henry's almost nihilistic anxiety, his feeling that nothing he does matters because he lives in such a shithole that he cannot possibly affect in a positive way. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that, I mean, it's also autobiographical about David Lynch's own time in Philadelphia, how much he just hated it there. No, that's the, that's the common. Yeah. Well, I think Lynch says something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he, he has directly stated, I'm I'm recreating my experience in Philadelphia a little bit with this. Okay. He has directly said that. Okay. I was just curious if he had ever actually directly said that. So yeah, I mean, there, there does some, some certainly, to some extent seem to be well how responsible can i be for anything look at this shithole i live in like i can't possibly affect positivity here so does anything i do even matter yeah and that i mean you could kind of apply that to human society at large we're all born into a bum deal in that humans have a real rough time relating to one another as a whole i mean look at the history of genocide and colonialism and war and you need to look no further than that to see that we're not really good at relating to each other sometimes and um, I think it's very easy to uh, existentially be so flabbergasted uh, by the inequality throughout human history, by inequality th- throughout human history, that you can say, "Well, shit, I can't be responsible for anything. Nothing I do matters because look how bad it is already." It's easy to say, "I have no responsibility to move the needle," right? right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's a very fair reading. Let me go ahead and throw a severed head in the gears, though. Hit uh, me. And uh, read a little bit more of Lynch's own comments on creativity Damn and it. Eraserhead. Damn it. And um, just I'm just going to give this to you guys and let you re- – I have an idea as to what I think about this, but I'm curious what you will say. Um, so this is his comment. This is again from Catching the Big Fish. Catching the Big Fish, Lynch himself speaking about Eraserhead. <clears throat> Eraserhead is my most spiritual movie. No one understands when I say that, but it is. Eraserhead was growing in a certain way, and I didn't know what it meant. I was looking for a key to unlock what these sequences were saying. Of course I understood some of it, but I didn't know that the thing – the thing that pulled it all together. And it was a struggle. So I got out my Bible and I started reading. And one day I read a sentence and I closed the Bible because that was it. That was it. Then I saw the thing as a whole and it fulfilled the vision for me 100%. I don't think I'll ever say what that sentence was. No, and he shouldn't. He absolutely should not. But I totally, I get what he's saying, right? As an artist, as a creative type, he's you know he's got these ideas and these images, and he's putting together this film. And he's like, I don't know what this fucking means. What does this even mean? Because you know we we all um, float in circles with a lot of creative types. Uh, our creativity kind of really uh, is geared mostly to the this in service of this podcast. Uh, but we all know a lot of uh, you know comedians and filmmakers uh, just in our social circles. Um, and I know from talking to them that sometimes you start making a thing, not really knowing what it is, not knowing what you're going to do with it. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting, uh, comment from Lynch to say, I had no idea what this meant. And then one sentence in the Bible made me realize what it meant. I mean, I think there's a certain level of motivation. I just, I just retweeted a tweet not very long ago on, uh, on my Twitter account, uh, about, uh, some of the, uh, 
Ed Hopper and uh, Francis Bacon influences uh, two um, um, fine art uh, painting uh, artists uh, that uh, their their tableau f- um, find their way into lots of Lynch's work. And uh, I think that Lynch had a lot of ideas. And he had a lot of uh, sort of you know images that he wanted to recapture and sort of put them together in some form of a narrative. And there's a very, very sort of postmodern pastiche approach uh, that he's taking to it. But as I was thinking about the film as a spiritual exercise, my thought might be something like this. And Lynch has said this about Henry's character, that Henry is watching the world and he's puzzling really hard to figure out what's going on. That he finds himself uh, very much uh, like Joseph Kay and Franz Kafka's um, – the trial that uh, he's he's bemused and he's bewildered and just really just trying to understand the sort of Kafka esque mystery that he finds himself in and I, I think maybe that was Lynch's approach to spirituality in the film is that simply that there is a whole lot of the world that you just do not get and when you come to a point of accepting the not getting it you can embrace the lady in the radiator and everything will be fine I, I think maybe. That might be something that's going on in the film, but uh, that that's as close as I can get to a theological reading of anything like that. And I would love to know, you know, uh, is it faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen? You know, I, I, I we look now through a glass darkly. I have no idea what Jesus those, wept. Jesus wept. That's probably what it was. Um, and then the woman died, which is a very short verse in the book of Matthew. Perhaps that was what it was. But uh, I, I have no idea. But those are some thoughts that I, I think might be going on with the film. But well, as a resident theologian, that was really. Uh, I'm glad you were able to to bring that. Uh, thanks for that. Well, I feel, somebody needed to. <laughs> I found my color somewhere. So, <laughs> <laughs> ah, man, I, I mean, we've gone so long and said so little, which is kind of. I think the only way to attack a racer head. Yeah, it's it, it is an experience. It is uh, it's tone. It's all tone and emotion, and uh, yeah, it, 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 it's transcendental in some ways. And where can you feel that tone, Dalton? Right in the gooch. <laughs> uh, we had my sub, so we watched this at home, and uh, Arthur tweeted me saying that I could feel the tone of this film in my taint. Uh, so sorry for getting graphic on you there, listener. But yeah, man. I mean, we we had the my my sound turned up, you know, pretty adequately to to experience this film. And there is one point in this film where the hum of the sound design is so loud that I I said something to like comment on it, and I could hear the like the vibration of the of the sound design in this movie in my vocal cords. Like as I was speaking, I could feel my vocal cords being vibrated by my own sound bar because it's such a. And again, for me, when you have a, a sound design that is that chaotic and also, I mean, it's uh, intentional chaos, intentionally chaotic, right? Uh, it's like a Fast and the Furious movie. It's absolute chaos that has been completely meticulously crafted. Uh, when the sound design is chaotic to that meticulous of a degree, you have to assume there's something going on there. And when the sound design is that unpleasant, like orally just not great to listen to, uh, and yet hypnotic that that's that makes you put you on pins and needles which is why i kept thinking about uh anxiety as i was watching this film uh and again we all take our own baggage to the film um so do with that what you will right uh but uh, for me yeah you feel it in your guts is, is a less graphic way to say it. you that that sound design hits you where you live i think I think that's yeah. I think it's good. I mean, it does. It, it it's unnerving. It's unsettling, and it and it works so well. And I think Lynch is a guy. You know, my from my limited experience with him, he's a guy that understands 
how to incorporate sound in some fascinating ways. Um, whether it's a score, whether it's design itself and sound effects and things like that, I think it's uh, very, very well done in his in his work. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think this brings us to a great point where we can actually render a verdict uh, with regard to Eraserhead, whether it's off with the Eraser's head or mm-hmm. not. Uh, show for trash, else or instead. I go to you first, Dalton Stewart. What do you say? Show for trash, else or instead on Eraserhead. Of course, this is a shovelable film. I think that was uh, pretty obvious to the listener by the you know the first fifteen minutes of the show, and I think it's going to be pretty clear we're all going to shelf this. Yeah, I mean it's an absolute masterpiece of American cinema. Um, American movies don't get to be this weird that often. This kind of strangeness uh, is usually reserved for French and Italian cinema. We don't get to be this, or, uh, you know, uh, Japanese and Korean cinema. We don't get to be this weird that often. Um, We don't get to be this, or or Spanish cinema. I mean, seriously, all, as I'm thinking about surrealist film, all these other countries with robust film traditions get to make weird movies. And we don't get to be this weird that often. And when somebody comes out of nowhere and says, hi, I'm David Lynch, and this is my first film, and it's Eraserhead, you have to be absolutely baffled. I mean, that would be like that'd be like if Mother was Darren Aronofsky's first movie, right? right. That would be like if The Exterminating Angel was Louis Bunuel's first film. Well, more on Louis Bunuel's first film later. Yeah, well, but I mean, to, for something to be this, like, big and weird... I mean, again, Boomwell was always weird, but Exterminating Angel is like a big movie. Yeah, right? it's huge. Eraserhead's yeah. a big-ass movie considering how small it actually is. You know, it's only got mm-hmm. maybe 10 people in it uh, and only a handful of locations. It's and, definitely a full-length feature, yeah. But yeah, it feels massive. You know what I mean? And, and for somebody in 1977, what are uh, some other big movies in, in that year? Star Wars, Smokey and the Bandit, and Eraserhead. Like, no one was doing this in American cinema at that time. Not not in the 70s. I'm sure there were other, you know, John Waters was doing weird experimental shit mm-hmm. that, you know, kind of defied logic. I mean, there were other filmmakers working in this avenue. Um, but man, just for somebody to come out of nowhere and make a movie this singular is pretty wild. I mean, even if he hadn't gone on to be kind of a, a huge artistic force in the world, you got to give props to this film. Because even something, okay, I can hear people in like, as I'm saying all these things, I can, I keep thinking of criticisms for this point. Yeah, you've got things like Easy Rider, right? Which is pretty weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are other, or, you know, even, um, you know, Days of Heaven and Badlands, you know, Malik's on the scene at this point. That's still not as weird as this movie. Right. Nobody is making anything this weird. Um, So even if Lynch hadn't gone on to be the force that he did, this would have to be shelfable. But considering he is one of, the best filmmakers that America ever produced, of course you have to put on the shelf, even if you don't like it. Um, and if you have seen Eraserhead and you just think to yourself, that was a dumb movie, that was a weird movie, I, I would encourage you to really try to give it another shot. Give it a, you know, set the scene, crank that sound up, turn the lights off, get some good friends with you, really try to engage with this film because I think even if you, even if its obtuseness kind of defies uh, d- diving into it for you, you'll have a fun time. It's weird and funny. Um, so if only for that, it's worthwhile. What should you pair with this? Um, well, I've, I thought uh, of a couple of things. First of all, you're going to want to check out Mulholland Drive, which is probably Lynch's masterpiece um, for me, uh, of the three films of his that I've seen, to be fair. So Veracerhead, Blue Velvet, and Mulholland Drive, for me, I still come down to Mulholland Drive as probably the best. 
Um, but it's really great to see somebody at the start of their career and really then at the peak of their career to kind of compare and contrast what they're doing. Um, and again, I, I think it's really interesting to see somebody, you know, in a racer head making such a male centric film with just sperm everywhere. I mean, just as far as the eye can see in this film, symbolic, sperm. symbolic sperm, we should clarify. Uh, and then to Swiggly go snake sperm and then to go on to make Mulholland drive, which is a love story about two women. Um, which is really a, a turn that I think is important in the maturation of any male artist is, all right, get over yourself, dude. Not everything's about being a guy. Um, and, and I think that's a real fun double bill for those two. Um, in addition, I am also going to recommend just some other really great first-time features. Um, just a few months ago in Shocktober, we talked about Julia Ducarneau, I believe is how you say her name, her first feature, Raw. Um, just like uh, Eraserhead is a completely singular first film, Raw is a barn burner, door-kicking open first film. Like, I mean, just absolutely great. Uh, what an amazing first feature film. If you have not caught up with Raw from last year yet, listener, I really, I, I know everybody uh, sitting around these mics is a big fan of that film as well. So I would strongly recommend that. Um, also, another film uh, kind of with a similar production history just in terms of... Uh, having a hard time getting the damn thing made. Uh, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Nice call. Uh, it's a completely different thing, obviously. It is, you know, a pretty straightforward film, whereas uh, this film is absolutely... Bon Eraserhead is absolutely bonkers. Night of the Living Dead's pretty straightforward. Uh, but it is also made on the cheap. It is made with real passion and real care to the craft. And it is... Uh, deeply influential just like lynch has kind of gone on to influence american artistic cinema night of the living dead has gone on to influence uh, american thrillers and american horror films yes the siege film already existed from westerns uh, but what romero did was say you know all these siege movies these movies about you know the alamo and things like this those are that's a terrifying event to find yourself in Let's swap out all the uh, the racism in those films for monsters and make it a film d deeply about uh, racism in the 1960s Well, and in American history as a whole, really. Um, and again, he didn't even mean to, as he said numerous yeah. times. He didn't even mean to. Uh, and just purely by accident really made a great film uh, with a lot of subtext and a lot of heart. Uh, so those are, those are the, the three things that I'd recommend. Absolutely. Continue yeah. your Lynch homework. And pick up those two great first-time horror films because, I mean, at the end of the day, Racerhead's kind of a body horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Shelf or trash? Else or instead? I gotta say shelf. I, I think it definitely deserves that. Uh, to go with it, though, I, I want to put together an existential life cycle uh, marathon. Uh, and you're going to kick things off with the wiles of youth as you're enjoying uh, life and just being young and dumb and exploring the world and figuring out what you're about. And we're going to go back a week and we're going to talk, uh, I think you pair it with E2 Mama Tambien uh, to start things off with. And then as you're moving into uh, adulthood and grappling with that responsibility, then you pull, you'd plug in a racer head and you'd follow that up 15 to 20 years later. You know, the kids are, you've got kids running around. You're not really sure what your life has become. You watch the big chill. I'm going to talk about the movie every <laughs> chance I get. Uh, uh, but finally, uh, as, as you near the end of your cycle and you have to start contemplating death, I think you watch uh, The Grey. 
and answer those questions and deal with that life. Hell yeah, baby. Uh, And so I think that's a marathon that that gets you through life and uh, helps you try to figure out some things along the way. That's fun. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I'm also going to say Shelf, which is obvious. I mean, I like this movie a whole lot. And uh, so I'm going to recommend a sort of a genealogy of film uh, for this. And Boonwell comes up uh, in this regard. And so uh, Lodge Door is what I really want to recommend. His second film, his debut film is 16 minutes long, and it's uh, called uh, Unchin Andalou, which is an Andalusian dog. It's got the famous scene of uh, the, the, eyeball. One, the eyeball and the razor blade uh, in that, and so some people just will not like that and will not want to be a part of that, and I get that. But there's less eye trauma uh, in, um, by far in Lodge Door, and so, which means Age of Gold. And so check- now, is Lodge Door short as well, or is that a feature? It's, it's an hour long. It- it's an hour and five, so it's feature length. Okay. Yeah, technically feature length. If you want to double bill the two of them make them into a feature, then you can do that. Watch the two Boonwell features, which you're usually they're bound together mm-hmm. uh, if you buy them on disc or, f- or rent them in some way. They usually come together. And then uh, I think some progeny of Eraserhead. Let's look all the way forward uh, to Peter Strickland's uh, Barbarian Sound Studio. Hell yeah, man. Uh, which is a heavily sound design, heavily influenced by Eraserhead, is this, uh, again, this sort of descent into madness and uh, is uh, just a whole lot of fun as well. And lastly, I want to recommend a music pick, which is David Lynch's debut solo uh, rock and roll modern blues album called Crazy Clown Time. It's so much fun. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the, David, David's got a rock and roll album out. What? Oh, yeah, Crazy Clown Time is great. Are they originals? Are they covers? They're originals. He wrote a blues album. They are, yes, yes. It's uh, sort of like blues insofar as like the sound, uh, the music, those sort of uh, really, really reverby guitars that you might hear on Twin Peaks. Okay. It's that really kind of retro, retro rockabilly kind of sound. Uh, Does he, so I assume he's playing and singing. Yes. Holy shit. It is so good. Um, my favorite tracks are uh, So Glad, which is I'm So Glad You're Gone, mm-hmm. is the refrain in that particular track. And then a very, very long experimental track called Strange and Unproductive Thinking. Um, this is... <laughs> he he paints, he writes books, he makes records, he's a filmmaker. What the... Damn, David. Way <laughs> to make the rest of us just feel deeply inadequate. Uh, but the record, again, is called Crazy Clown Time, and I could not recommend it more. It is It is a lot of fun. <laughs> What the fuck is... What am I doing with my life? <laughs> so, uh, there you go, dear listener. Those are our recommends. We'd like to hear your thoughts on Eraserhead. You can do that via those magical means of social media. Already mentioned, we're going to keep moving right along down our uh, January anti-trash marathon. We're going to go back into some classical Hollywood cinema. We're going to look at a little Robert Mitchum feature, uh, Night of the Hunter. Charles Lawton's directorial debut and his only film that he ever directed uh this is one that i championed to do on the show i i've been meaning to watch it for years uh finally caught up with a couple months back and when we were setting up the the syllabus for anti-trash this year i was like we're doing it uh so i'm so excited to share this movie with you listeners i'm so excited to share it with dustin and arthur um yeah i'm really looking forward to it yeah, I, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I, it's a good movie. And, uh, oh, you, you have seen it? I've seen it, yeah. Okay. So it's going to be a fun conversation, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. And, guys, it's been 250 episodes. And, uh, the, you know, Eraserhead is a great way to cap that off, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. And, that's, that's wild. Yeah, we've been, we've been at this uh, for a hot minute now. And uh, so 250 episodes in, we've kept on watching, or you've kept on watching, we've kept on talking, and we'll see you all next time.
Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, a product of Good Trash Media. For more Good Trash content, head over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro for today was a supercut uh, of Junkie XL and Hans Zimmer uh, Wonder Woman score interspersed with some film quotes uh, edited together by myself, Arthur Gordon. Our outro for today is In Heaven, as performed by Laurel Near in Eraserhead. <laughs>